This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. Did you know that cyclists who ride a minimum of three hours a week have a 28% lower risk of all-cause mortality than non-cyclists? Shouldn't your life insurance premiums reflect that? Health IQ is an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like cyclists, runners, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com mtb. Or mention the promo code MTB when you talk to a Health IQ agent today. Stay tuned for more information partway through this episode. You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. Back in episode 10, we heard from Bruce Martins of the National Interscholastic Cycling Association. And as a continuation of our discussion from last week about reducing barriers for youth getting into the sport of mountain biking, this episode will hear from one NICA team in particular, who works to create nearby trails for not only their kids, but also the community. I'm your host, Brian Hillier, and this is episode 41 of Frontlines. follow the Facebook page, then you've seen the latest recommendation in the Frontlines Book Club. The recommendation comes from past guest and friend of the podcast, Patrick Lucas of the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program. Patrick's recommended read is The Inconvenient Indian, a curious account of native people in North America by Thomas King. As stewards and frontline advocates of our colonized wild spaces, we all need to understand our shared history and jaded past. The first step is understanding. And only after that can we begin the process of reconciliation. The account of North America's dark history surrounding its indigenous people is awkward, uncomfortable, thought-provoking, and entertaining, sometimes all in the same sentence. Not only is the book important for all North Americans, but for mountain bikers as well. If you'd like to purchase the book, then visit frontlinesmtb.com book club. Click the book cover and purchase through Amazon. Any purchases made on Amazon will help to support the podcast through Amazon's affiliate program. Just like trails, podcasts might be free, but that doesn't mean that they don't cost money. The book club is a great way to get a new read and support the show at the same time. Once again, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. Health IQ saves its customers up to 33% because physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and a 58% lower risk of diabetes compared to people who are inactive. If approved, Health IQ will use information like race and event registrations and your ride log information from websites like Strava, Trailforks, or MapMyRide to secure you with a better rate on life insurance. Just like a clean driving record will get you lower car insurance, Health IQ helps those living an active, healthy lifestyle pay less for life insurance. And Health IQ doesn't just generate leads and forward you to an insurer. They walk you through the entire journey. 
from answering any initial questions to starting an application, going through underwriting all the way to when your policy is signed and official. Learn more and get a free quote at HealthIQMTB or mention the promo code MTB when you talk to a Health IQ agent today. I'm joined by two guests, both from the Stillwater Area Scholastic Cycling Advocates, also known as SASCA, out in Minnesota. Calvin Jones is the local NICA team director and chair of SASCA. Hi, Calvin. Hey, Brett. And Hank Gray is Dirt Boss and former board member. Hi, Hank. Hey, Brian. How are you doing? Good. So first off, I just want to say uh, thank you to you both for, for joining me. I, I really appreciate it. Sure. It's, it's great to be here. And after listening to your show, and uh, it's a bit intimidating to live up to <laughs> or just try to approach or um, I sure want to ask a lot of questions to the people that we've heard, though. Some great, you've had some great, great uh, guests. Well, thank you, and and you know what, I'm I'm excited to kind of have you on here and and to kind of contribute to uh, to what has been uh, 40 episodes of of, uh, of discussion. This is now episode 41, so um, I think uh, I think this is going to be a, a great conversation. So I'm looking forward to it for sure. To kind of get started, uh, the Stillwater Area Scholastic Cycling Advocates, or, or SASCA as it's, uh, as it's better known perhaps, um, maybe let's even start kind of before that. And, and that's with the, the Stillwater Area High School Mountain Bike Team. And, and so that's a NICA team. And for those that aren't familiar with NICA, it's the, the National Interscholastic Cycling Association. And, and they offer resources and services and, and governance for regional high school uh, mountain bike leagues across the United States. How did how did the the NICA team get started and the league that surrounds it? How did it get started in Stillwater? In 2013 is was our was our first year, and there was a, a bunch of parents and Hank uh, was was there at the creation, and me and uh, uh, boy three three other dads basically, um, and we we, kept, we we talked about this and we knew what the existence the, it, the league in Minnesota had been a year old. Uh, and we we talked amongst ourselves literally at a at a, um, a cross country Nordic uh, summer workout. So if you can imagine the ski team is, you know, it's, it's June and we're just standing around talking to each other. Well, should we do this mountain bike thing? And well, you'll do it if I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it if if you do it. So okay, we'll agree to do it, right? And uh, so we all jumped into it. Didn't know what we were getting into, and it's it's been a, an interesting interesting time. So. Um, that's pretty much how how we got our our start. Nike. What's interesting about it? They don't. It's not a true franchise that they're going to come in and um, they give you a nice template. But uh, you've got to provide a lot of the ingredients, and uh, each team has their own story to tell. So it's it's not uh, it's it's not plug and play. It's uh, um, here are some components, but you're going to have to connect the dots. So, Hank. Well, yeah, the um, the idea was that when we started our team, we had to make a big decision about aligning ourselves with the school or actually being independent, more of an independent provider uh, where you aren't really aligned with the school, uh, you aren't aligned with the athletic director. Um, so uh, Calvin, being kind of the, 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 the chief of this group, um, we ended up making a group decision that we would approach the school district and the school and the, the athletic director and uh, present the fact that we were going to be starting this team. And uh, our athletic director, unlike many athletic directors in Minnesota, uh, they're all a little different. They have different feelings about sport. 
Um, ours was very, very open to what we were doing. In fact, uh, <laughs> the team grew so fast that he almost felt like, what did I get myself into? But we were granted a space on the campus to be able to actually have kids leave school at the end of the day. And instead of walking over to the track or walking over to the soccer field or the softball field, they could come over to our, our bike shed and pick up their bike and be able to go and have an afternoon practice after school like any other sport. And that is what allowed our team to kind of grow in leaps and bounds faster than most other schools in the state. And within two years, we and continue to be the largest uh, program in the state. And we're actually the largest program in the eastern United States, east of the Mississippi. So that's the way things kind of started to form was that we would be an after school program versus an evenings and weekend, more like a club sport. And what size is the is the team at right now? Uh, this year we were at, at 90 wow. and it, the progression's gone 26, 38, 56, 70 and now 90. Uh, so it, it's 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 going to taper, and uh, um, we try and be inclusive. Uh, we don't require racing, uh, but we do build around racing. We that gives us a good focus, a good um, core to to circle around. Uh, but we don't. If, if a student doesn't feel like racing, uh, they can work out with us, uh, but they're still doing the same workout. Mm. Very cool. So this isn't like other sports uh, at the school where, where there's the potential for, for being cut from the team. Like this is something where if, if you want to be a part of this, you can totally be a part of this. Yes, ab- absolutely. Everyone gets there, get that butt on the saddle on the line uh, and uh, you could win that race. And uh, that may not happen, but uh, no, we, we don't, we don't pick the team, um, uh, which is a, a really, really nice, nice thing. You are staged, Nika. This is where Nika comes in. They will stage you on your finishes. You may be starting fiftieth due to your results, um, but that's you know that's that's fair. But uh, no, we don't. Uh, there's not a. You have to earn to be on varsity from your points and finishes. The coaches don't pick who is on varsity. Mm. It's by your finishes. Yeah. And so then where does the, the Stillwater area scholastic cycling advocates kind of come into this, you know, they're, they're a separate group. And, and so right. where did the need for a trail association to kind of support the NICA team come into play? The school, uh, our athletic director actually suggested uh, becoming a nonprofit. And this actually came out of funding. We could collect team fees uh, as being part of the school. The school had to hold those fees for us. And it was uh, pulling, like pulling teeth out of a bear, trying to get money back to spend it on, on uh, trailers or equipment. So the athletic director said, um, if you become a nonprofit, 501c nonprofit, uh, you know, a little legal entity, I can let you collect your own fees directly. And that sounded wonderful. Becoming a nonprofit in the U.S. is is a headache. There's a lot of hoops to jump through, but it was worth it for our program uh, because then we could collect our own fees. That's where SASCA was created so that we could buy a trailer. We could buy the equipment and, and do the things we needed to do. Then it became apparent. Well, we need we need places to ride, so we uh, developed the concept of the dirt boss. Well, the idea, and, and to pick up from Calvin, 
the idea of creating a, a, a nonprofit corporation and then, of course, uh, filing for and receiving a 501c3 designation as a non, as a, um, essentially a charity, uh, allows us, uh, the right, uh, and under the umbrella of the federal government, uh, under their watchful eyes to see money coming in and money going out. So we can receive donations that are then tax deductible, whether it's a, a company, uh, uh, whether it's a family, anything like that. It makes it very easy to be able to collect um, uh, donations. The other thing is with the corporation that's behind it, the nonprofit, same name, Saska, it's easy for us to um, approach, say, a city or uh, any government entity as an actual organization, not just a group of people or a school, a high school team, um, a lot of times in, in the, uh, uh, the, uh, the cities and uh, just in the public in general, people kept referring to Saska as the Stillwater mountain bike team, the high school team. And really, they're two completely separate entities. Uh, Saska uh, helps uh, fund the high school team, but it is a separate entity, almost like a, a, a football uh, a support group. Uh, many of them have that. They have a lot more money flowing through their programs. So they have things like a touch a touchdown club, and that's a, a nonprofit where they can raise funds. But what we decided to do with Saska was also to do some outreach, and that was to form uh, essentially a subcommittee within the organization that focused on trail advocacy for a reason of when you have 50, 60, 70, 80, even 90 kids, and you're sitting in your high school athletic fields, you need to go somewhere. Many of our rides can be you know, 10, 15, 20 miles. And we try to keep the kids off the roads as much as possible. So we needed safe places to ride. Well, with Saska, it was very easy for us to not only fundraise, but then be able to get uh, insurance to approach a city who is willing to allow us to go into a park with their approval and actually build some single track trail. And uh, the first trail that we uh, built in the city of Oak Park Heights, uh, there was a small formula that was needed. First of all, you had to have a city with some land that was interested, a park that maybe was uh, not very developed or anything. You needed a, a, a government or a city administrator, in this case, a gentleman named Eric Johnson, who was very, very forward thinking about this type of thing and actually approached us after we had uh, lost the opportunity to build in a, uh, the neighboring town of Stillwater to basically present an, uh, a, a proposal and then also be able to say, not only can we pr propose to do this, but we'll provide free labor <laughs> volunteers and we'll fundraise the money for the infrastructure that's needed. So all of this was able to be done more easily by having a uh, nonprofit corporation in, in the name of Saska. Previous, like as the, as the team just kind of got started, what were the riding opportunities uh, in the area? Like, did you have many trails uh, around you that you could utilize to begin with? Well, the first couple of practices uh, always were in the uh, were on the school grounds, and that's to practice riding safety, uh, literally riding in a pace line with proper uh, gaps between front and rear tires, uh, proper braking. Uh, our kids are taught to actually call out. They, they start to understand they're like a flock of, of, uh, of geese, that if, if one is doing the wrong thing, it's going to mess everyone else up. After that, we would then head out on um, uh, the, that part of Washington County near Stillwater is blessed with a lot of uh, paved bike trails. But the closest off-road trails were in a county park that was more mowed horse trails that they allowed bikes on. But 
we had to ride on a uh, high-speed uh, two-lane road with wide shoulders. So we had a 10-foot wide shoulder, which is ex- exceedingly safe. But when you have cars driving by at 55, 60 miles an hour, <laughs> um, there were very specific rules that we had to put into place. So it was a 25-point safety program that, that parents and kids had to sign explaining to the kids how serious it was that when you were riding on the road that you had to be very mindful of where you were on the shoulder. Like you didn't ride on the fog line. You actually were riding close to the edge of the uh, paved road, close to where you have that gravel uh, extension into wherever the, the, the ditch or whatever's on the side of the road. But um, it was, it, I can tell you, there were uh, the first two years, it was, <laughs> there were days where it was very uh, nerve wracking uh, riding with a seventh or eighth grader who was thinking about the blue sky and, you know, the green grass and the pretty flowers. And then meanwhile, there's there's pickup trucks riding by at, at 60 miles an hour, um, which, of course, I was in the back of a lot of these pace lines uh, with little gray hairs popping out in my head thinking we have to figure out a way to safely get these kids to proper practice uh, arenas. And mm-hmm. uh, that's where the birth of really trying to start to push this forward uh, occurred. Yeah, I do a lot of uh, a lot of riding with with high school aged kids, and, and it doesn't matter how many kind of safety points or, or how many times you, you speak to them, kids are, are are less aware about traffic than uh, than than perhaps uh, adults who are are driving on a regular basis are. So it can be nerve wracking. So let's jump to to kind of you said the first two years that was kind of the what was happening. So then I'm assuming in in year three that's when the development of trails or that process begins. What uh, what were some of the initial steps there? Um, I, I guess, um, Calvin, if I may, uh, it literally started with approaching at first uh, uh, the city of Stillwater and literally going to parks and recreation commission meetings. And uh, several of the people on those boards I knew personally, some were from uh, Nordic programs or track programs or cross-country running programs, uh, some were neighbors, just went and listened and then basically spoke in open forum, explained what I was interested in doing. Uh, requested that I make a proposal. Essentially, it didn't take any time from them. Uh, and then went out and did some research with some of the local trail building groups, uh, who at the time were very interested in what we were doing. And, uh, also, uh, did a little trail building myself with, with, uh, some, uh, advocacy groups in Northern Wisconsin. Either way, I, I tried to inform myself and then tried to parlay that into and my engineering background to parlay that into a um, uh, a properly written formal type proposal about what the trails would look like, how they would be built, uh, using IMBA uh, building standards, uh, naming them, uh, actually using mapping and showing a, a proposal, literally showing a line on a map, saying this is what this could look like. With with the the, the failure that we had in Stillwater, uh, which was a process of about a year and a half from 2014 to 2015, it it basically out of one death of one uh, option, we a, a new one was born. The uh, a city nearby saw that, that our plan had failed in Stillwater. They actually contacted us, and then we literally rewrote the same exact proposal, but for a different park, and uh, that went much more quickly. That was a process that took probably about, um, I want to say about five months from the initial proposal uh, being submitted to the Parks Commission to the City Council approving it. Uh, on a uh, basically a four to one vote. So, so you're not dealing with large pieces of land like this. Isn't uh, we're not dealing with with U.S. Forest Service or or national parks or or BLM land. You know what kind of space are are you utilizing for these trails? 
both trails, uh, the first uh, proposal in Stillwater was probably uh, about uh, 35 to 40 acres, of which probably about 35 to 40 acres were usable. Um, the park we ended up building in was probably closer to um, 90 to 100 acres, of which we use about uh, 35 to 40 acres because there's a large water basin uh, uh, in the middle of the park. So um, we're talking about trail lengths that range anywhere from two to uh, could be extended all the way up to maybe as much as five miles. We Our intention is not to, we are not big enough to uh, build uh, support, maintain trails above uh, five miles. We're, we're not a regional builder. We never pretend to be and we never will be. It'll always be shorter, uh, uh, shorter trails. And, and on that note, so that's, you've got the Minnesota off-road cyclists in the area and they're, they're a large group. What does a small group like yourself, you know, what advantages does, does that give you that, uh, that a group like Mork uh, potentially isn't, isn't capable of, or, or, or maybe just doesn't have the, uh, the time to kind of focus on? Right. I think that's exactly it. The, the time, the, the small products, the small projects that, that are important to us are not of interest to a large group like that. The, the type of trail we have uh, that we call Valley View Trails is about 3.1 miles. And it's a great, for our use, there's some different loops you can do for our practices. It's not something you're likely to jump in the car and drive 30 minutes to 45 minutes to get to and ride and then say, oh, well, that was great. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very local. Uh, a new park we simply got a, a real recently approved uh, in, in a neighboring city of, of Lake Elmo. It's going to be specifically for younger riders. It doesn't have the technical attributes. It doesn't have the elevate, elevation gain. So it's our, our development track uh, that we can get to with our younger people. I think the advantage that we have is the city politicians want to see local faces. They, they want to see their, their constituents show up. So when we go in front of people, we can carry our, our team. This is how important lo lo the local aspect is. We can go to, to Oak Park Heights and have, oh, here's a big flood of 90s, you know, young kids. The city council wants to know, okay, which one of you live in Oak Park Heights? <laughs> which one of those parents can vote for me? Then we go to a neighboring city and we make the same proposal we have to have some constituents that are there, so it's it's it becomes personal, right? This is this is Sally and Bob down the street with their family. From me, says the council person. Ah, I I, I can relate to this. This is this is now something that's that's personal and, and local. So, um, Mark does a great job. Very technical. If they would come from Minneapolis and and you know, all these other places and come into these small cities and city councilmen. That uh, that wouldn't quite be the same splash. They that would be an outsider basically coming in. So that local aspect, I think, politically is very very important for us. Yeah, Brent. To add a, a, a just a note to that, the what what we have in many regards that that a, a regional uh, trail advocacy group doesn't necessarily have is we have a recurring and constant flow of young parents and young kids that are coming into the program. Every kid has to go to high school or middle school and high school. And, and of course, generally they have parents or, or guardians. And these people 
in seventh grade and soon to be sixth grade, they come into the program. And we even have feeder programs uh, within our within our uh, town that that help feed our program. Well, every one of those kids, again, has guardians and parents, some of whom, uh, not all of them, some of whom want to learn how to bike. They want to, some of them are interested in helping to build or maintain trails. They want to volunteer. Nowadays, most kids have to put in volunteer time, both for school requirements and also our own team. A, a regional advocacy group, uh, many times, what they do now is that they try to get large amounts of money usually from the government, um, where a lot of these trails end up be built, being built by a professional group. And uh, a lot of times then the local flavor, the, the personal touch of, the, of local students or local um, uh, interest, uh, people interested, it could be parents, it could be friends, that's lost a little bit. I mean, sometimes they have them get a little involved, but we're talking about in our programs, there's no machine building. Everything is hand-built. And it's hand-built for a reason, not because it necessarily makes the, the smoothest flow, but it definitely, the kids that are out on those trails that were helping to build, to place that rock, to help build that bridge, to help clear that buckthorn, they, they, you know, a year later, they're like, I worked on that part of the trail. It's almost like it's their trail. It, that section is like that you could put their name on it. You don't get that with the, the bigger projects and the machine building as much. So we have kids that have bought in at age 13, 14, 15, 18, these kids are going to come back from college. They're going to come back with, they're going to get married. They're going to have kids. They're always going to remember that that's something that they built. Yeah. This is the the stuff that I think excites me the, the most with this is, is not only getting kids into the sport, but also making sure that they, they see what advocacy and they see what, what trail building and trail maintenance looks like at the same time. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree there. Um, as we go forward, I mean, at some point, we're not going to be able to add more and more trail. It would be nice. But I, I think uh, as we maintain it, these uh, students are going to be, uh, uh, we can start training as a team in July. We build up in August. So we're going to be ripping around September, October. That's our big, heavy season. But in there, we're going to have to have some trail days. Now, we've, we've went down the single track and it got wet and it got tore up some. We got to come back and fix it. So even the, the kids that didn't initially build it that come through, we're going to try and build that extended uh, um, effort. Also, uh, an aspect of what's important here, I think the connection to the woods that you're riding in, and being in Minnesota here, you know, surrounded by the woods, I think that's real important. It's important that the, the, the kids ride through this stuff and know what they're riding through. And one thing that we've tried as a, a team that's still a work in progress, but I've as a team director, I've named uh, two of the students volunteered to be what I call team naturalists. And what their role is to be is to help us and the team understand the names of things. So my purpose isn't just a warm fuzzy knowing the birds and the little bees floating around. It's, it's um, garlic mustard. Wild garlic mustard is an invasive species here. And I want the students to be able to identify it so we can go and control it. Also, things like bees, if they see something that's a yellow jacket and they call it a bee, well, that's not quite right. It's, <laughs> it's good for control. We need to know that that's a yellow jacket. Then we have different things we can do. We don't want to kill the bees. We're a little more free about controlling the, the yellow jackets. So um, the, uh, you know, knowing what poison ivy is, knowing what types of trees, it's a nice thing just to, to be an advocate, you know, for the 
what they're writing in that sense, but it's also a practical sense to be able to manage and control and, and be, a, be a steward of the land that you're on. So trying to take a, a little deeper than, than just, a, just a shovel and a, and, a, and a cloud. I think, well, I mean, that, that achieves two things and you've, you've alluded to, to both of them there of, of it's not just about those trails and, and, and the biking, but it's also not just about the racing aspect of, of things either, which, which I think is great. You've got, uh, so you, you, I'm sure you've got kids that are, that are competitive and, and are looking to, uh, to be successful as far as, uh, the racing end of things goes. Uh, I'm assuming you've got, you've got kids that are kind of at the, the other end of the, the spectrum. Um, and, and safe to assume you've probably got kids that are coming from, from mountain bike families as well, but do you have kids that are, that are coming from, from what we wouldn't define as, as mountain bike families? I know you did mention that, that there were some parents kind of looking to get into this sport. Are, are you seeing Seeing a number of participants that are kind of coming into this with really no exposure to mountain biking. Uh, yeah, I think we have a, a, a family that was was this way. Their uh, parents are not athletic. Uh, they were looking for their kids to do things. The kids were definitely um, pushing the button on the video console. Loved the video games. Had the games you know, on the couch. That's that was their life. And uh, this team or this. <laughs> can't brag about our team, but this lifestyle and doing this has really turned them around. So the, the, the kids are on, on, on bikes now all the time. They're doing other sports, cross-country running. They're doing skiing in order to stay fit for mountain biking. And the parents as well are now looking for to, to, to get on bikes, to, to, be, to be part of this. If that's what their kids are doing, they want to be part of their life. So, yeah, we, we, we do see that, that, that kind of turnaround. Absolutely, with the big team like this, we do see a lot of the biker families, that, uh, which is a good thing, too. The mom and dad have been bikers. Uh, a classic case is mom and dad were in college riding bikes. Uh, the young couple gets married. Boom, 12 years go by, and all of a sudden they got this kid coming up into school, and they learn there's a bike team. This is great. So the, the, the child gets a, has a bike or sometimes their parents' bike uh, and the, the parents start riding again with them and they, they all get, get back into it. So it, it regenerates their, their enthusiasm. Uh, Hank, we've we've spoken in the past, and and you've mentioned uh, something that that you refer to as kind of the the space between or the the spaces between spaces, and uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, and 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 perhaps kind of just help. Maybe there's some some other trail organizations out there that uh, focus more on on the parks, uh, you know, and maybe bigger land managers, and and maybe are overlooking um, what you refer to as kind of the spaces between spaces, and and so what are you referring to when you, you say that? Brent, I guess what I'm talking about is I, I guess I could use a, a more uh, uh, both a, a local, uh, a quick impression that was made upon me about, uh, I don't know, eight, nine years ago. Um, recently, at the Winter Olympics, uh, we had a young uh, woman named Jess Diggins who uh, won the first gold medal for the United States uh, in cross-country skiing. She's locally uh, born and raised in Afton, Minnesota, went to Stillwater High School. She she races with the fastest women in the world and wins. She learned to ski, and I've heard this through her parents and obviously through her coaches, 
at a, at a local uh, cross-country ski trail <laughs> that's maintained by some of our volunteers, people that volunteer with our mountain bike team now. She didn't learn to ski at Soldier Hollow. She didn't, you know, practice at, at, at in Park City, Utah. She practiced at a little a little corner of the world in 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 the downtown part of Stillwater, Minnesota, which is where you you form a love of a sport. Now, of course, you know the the, the expectation for anyone isn't that oh all these kids are going to become Olympians and win gold medals, but what it is is that it's an access that any kid can be close by and go and 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 ride some single track that they don't have to depend on their parents, they don't have to depend on a car or getting out onto a major highway and try to get to these larger trails, these, you know, uh, more what you would consider regionally recognized or nationally even recognized state or nationally recognized trails, but that they can fall in love with the sport at a younger age by just going out with their buddies and doing it. Um, the, the, the space between the spaces really is the regional areas within a city, like for us, the Twin Cities, or it could be uh, in around uh, uh, Virginia or in Texas or in Utah or whatever. The large parks, the large state area, the state parks and large county parks and whatever, a lot of them have already been eyed and they've been, they, they're usually tied up in very large projects that many times take a decade. We have some larger parks, even in our area, that have been tied up for 30 years in terms of doing any type of trail development. Meanwhile, generations of kids aren't getting that access. So uh, both what Saska can do and what, what we see being able to do is to get trail on the ground now. So a seventh grader can actually have access to this sport at a young age in a safe environment and, uh, and, and be able to, if they desire to fall in love with it. I, for me personally, being in the back of a lot of pace lines with, with young men and young women, uh, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth graders, sometimes eleventh and twelfth graders that have never ridden a mountain bike. When you get to experience the first time to get on a single track trail and and just see the the pupils dilate and the and the excitement, the heart pounding, and they come off the trail and the smiles on their face, it's worth every single east. Excuse me, Calvin Yellow Jackets thing, or all the digging and all the sore muscles to be able to give them that opportunity. It's unforgettable. It really is, and. Uh, um, so the building and the advocacy we do, you don't need a 25-mile gnarly trail system with jumps and, and all kinds of freestyle and downhilling. Kids learn the first time in local trails, and they can make it a lifetime sport. Or who knows, someday maybe we'll have a gold medalist from our team. But we know that we're at least giving these kids an opportunity close by that's accessible. Well, thank you to, to both of you for taking the time to, to chat with me. I, I really appreciate it. Great. Okay. I look forward to hearing, uh, hearing the podcast. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can send me an email or audio file to FrontlinesMTB at gmail.com. If you have feedback on past shows or you've got suggestions for future shows, I want to hear from you. You can stream the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And if you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. Included in the show notes are links to the Stillwater Area Scholastic Cycling Advocates and the National Interscholastic Cycling Association. Don't forget you can support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes along with a link to the Frontline's MTB Book Club, 
portion of any purchase made on Amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast. Check out Patrick Lucas's recommended read, The Inconvenient Indian, A Curious Account of Native People in North America by Thomas King. In next episode, I'll be discussing with Patrick his best practices and guidelines for engaging and working with Indigenous people on trails and outdoor recreation projects. As always, music is by Lee Rosevere, production notes by Jennifer Pride. Artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and BGW Creative. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails.